Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And I'm Lana. And this is the journey to transformation. Lana Wolf, she or her pronouns, is one of the co-founders and a director at Edge Effect, which assists humanitarian and development organizations to work in genuine partnership with sexual and gender minorities. You may know this group of people as LGBTQI plus people, or as I like to say, the alphabet mafia. Lana is going to talk to us about sex. You will orientation, <laughs> gender identity or expression, and sexual characteristics. Yay! <laughs> I don't get to talk about sex much. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have a another part of the podcast, which is Journey to Transformation After Dark. So you can stay on and we can have another chat. But we do put that behind a paywall because, you know, sex sells. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Lana. Thank you very much. It's so lovely to be here. We'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey. What brought you here? Uppercase J, lowercase J, your choice. Our journey is one that feels like it's been a really long time. It's been about six years. And could argue that our journey is one that is much longer. I won't say how old I am, but a really long time now. I have a history of working around inclusion. I'm an inclusion specialist. I think that that's something that I always did because I was always a bit of an insider-outsider, being someone who's Fijian-Australian, in white Australia, in colonised Australia, having a white mother and a black father, um, being a lesbian myself, having all sorts of different identities and experiences coming together in different places. And I met Emily and we were talking about our way forward in the world, our work and what we were doing and the 2015 Good Humanitarian Guide had come out and it started off with disaster managers at present do not know or understand the needs of LGBTIQ plus people and that's literally the beginning of Edge Effect being in a situation of going actually that's not good enough as members of the community we want to change that and we know what discrimination feels like we know what stigma feels like imagine that in such a systemic way in the aid system and particularly having worked in gender i.e cisgendered heterosexual women working in disability what happens when all of those things come together so we started edge effect it's as simple as that and as deeply difficult and complex as that <laughs> in the OECD countries or Global North countries, we understand a little bit more about the LGBTIQ plus acronym, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, intersex and queer. Sometimes there's a plus to create a space for all of the other identities that exist. But when working on a global scale in terms of so much cultural diversity and understanding around identities about the difference between, I guess, identities and experiences. And we first started using the term sexual and gender minorities because some of the communities that we had worked with use that term. So what we really love about the term OGS is that it's based on characteristics that everybody has. Everybody has a sexual orientation. Everybody has a gender identity, a gender expression and sex characteristics. So it's a little bit less othering, but also it creates space for us to be inclusive of all of the different identities that exist in the world in all of the different cultural nuances of those identities and it's also one that is used within that global united nations human rights system as well so that intersection between human rights development and humanitarian kind of come together within this term and that's the one we tend to overarchingly use however what we always do and we always suggest for other people is to ask the local communities how they would like to be identified what terms they use how we pay respect to them and what words they prefer. So Lauren and I, in all disclosure, have, well, maybe I have more of a bugbear with wondering how often you're having to reframe or I hesitate to use the word re-educate, but explain when you're using an acronym in this way. I kept having to go back to it just to remind myself what the order of things were, but I'm just wondering what the challenges are with the kind of introduction of a less familiar acronym. That's a really good question because people People always ask that of us. They always want to know what the acronym means and what do they call people and how to include LGBTIQ plus people or people with diverse OGS. And to some degree, I think having that conversation is really good, but it's also not the most important thing. It's certainly, it's important to treat people with dignity and respect and use the terms that they prefer to use. But we have to explain 
the reason why you should be including people of diverse OGS in the first place in humanitarian and development context. We have to justify and explain why we need to have a rights-based approach to development in humanitarian work in the first place often. And we do get a lot of resistance to that from actors right across the aid sector. But also just adding L for lesbian, for example, doesn't actually ameliorate the systemic discrimination and exclusion that L for lesbians face in a humanitarian and development context. The identities in and of themselves are secondary to the way in which people are excluded. The identities just describe a person and by acknowledging that descriptor or acknowledging that identity does in and of itself ameliorate the discrimination that exists. And so although terms are really important to show dignity and respect to communities that are excluded, that are marginalised and are discriminated against, the way in which Edge Effect goes about this work is actually through a norms-based approach. So it kind of doesn't matter what term you use as long as it's showing respect. What really matters is getting to those underlying norms that discriminate within the system, and that's heteronormativity, cisnormativity, gender binarism, and endosexism. So an example of heteronormativity is an assumption that the world is made up of couples in a relationship that has a man or a woman, and that all families and all partnerships are made up in that way. An example of that is in shelter distribution, when there's an emergency and people need to go into shelters. Shelters are often organised in a way that it's for a family. And if you're not in a heteronormative family structure, your family's not legitimised and you're not able necessarily to access that family shelter, which means that you'll be put into shelters for single people, which means that your relationship's not recognised, you might not be or feel safe in that, you might be put into different shelters than your partner. And so it's not the identity itself, it's the underlying norm of heteronormativity. Cisnormativity is the assumption that everybody's gender is exactly the same as it was assigned at birth. How that plays out in the aid system, for example, is rapid needs assessments and disaggregated data. We know that a lot of aid sector rapid needs assessments and disaggregated data is sex, disability and age focused. But what information are you going to get by sharing your sex and how does that differentiate from what your needs are according to your gender and what happens when people mistake those two things to be exactly the same? So often we use my co-founder Emily as an example who is an out and proud trans woman. She would tick the box woman because she's a trans woman. That's how she identifies, that's how she knows and understands herself. But what does that mean for being able to access programs or how programs are designed for mental hygiene health, for example, or safety in using bathrooms or food distribution lines? and a whole variety of other ways in which we organise relief and distribution or development programs within the aid system. Gender binarism, another underlying norm, assumes that there's only men and women. Again, we see that through all of our tools, all of our policies, all of our guidance within the humanitarian and development system, everywhere, men and women, boys and girls. So lots of third gender categories or non-binary categories or people who just have a different gender outside of man and woman. For example, Hidra, Hijijiri, Fafafini, Fa'atama, Fakuseolewa, Aravani, and the list goes on and on and on. Where are they? What kind of support can they get? What kind of development programs can they participate in? What box do they tick if they don't identify within that binary? And lastly, the norm that we focus on, and this is where the least work has been done and where a lot of attention really needs to be paid, is the I for intersex folks or endosexism. What happens? when we assume in the world that there's only two types of bodies, there's only two types of sex characteristics, XX and XY, when there's actually, I think, about 47 different types of sex characteristics of kinds of bodies. How does that interact and interplay with things like gender binaries in the way that we know and understand the world when we do sex disaggregated data? And so it's those four underlying norms that really are those drives of discrimination and stigma and exclusion systemically within the aid system that are the things that are the most important for us to focus on. 
on. And in terms of the acronyms and identities, there's so many of them that it really does come down to often, yes, having to explain and create a moment of reflection and learning with the people in the organizations we work with, but also just focusing on how do we show respect to people. Lauren, you've got a lot to answer for yourself, my friend. (laughs) I know. As somebody who is a lot of in the data. I know. I was thinking that actually. So my background is monitoring and evaluation. And I've been there with that disaggregated data. And it really resonated for me when you were talking about how people misuse sex and gender and how sex and gender is used interchangeably in the data that's disaggregated. And there's no or rarely time or people are not committed enough to separating that, understanding it more and gathering the data that will actually help reach some of these more invisible groups. And I've just so many times seen that misused. How do you think that affects generalizability in your data? I think it's now all a bit of a misleading set of data, isn't it? If we're just using our own interpretation of what gender and sex is, putting that on a group that we're interviewing and then taking that away and saying this is representative of what the gender is in that place. No, I mean the other way around. (laughs) So if we're capturing data on people and how they want to be represented, you might have a number of different ways that people are describing themselves. Mm. So in terms of generalizability, I mean, I have issues with generalizability. Lana, don't get me wrong. (laughs) But I'm just wondering for people who have a heavy emphasis on their data being statistical, how do you hold all of the diversity that may exist within a population of rights holders that you're working with? How do you deal with your data? I mean, I've completely gone off script, but I'm just very curious about how this works because we've tried various things in our work, one of which went well initially because we thought the organization described themselves as feminist leadership principles. So when we started our data collection, we said, oh, can we ask you your pronouns? And I think Lauren and I both got laughed at. Yeah, <laughs> Pretty, yeah. Literally every at single yeah. person laughed at us. And we're like, well, we want to make sure that we're referring to you and describing you in a way that you're comfortable with. But yeah, we fully got laughed at in that one. Yeah, I wasn't really sure how to respond. And I feel like I should have come with these norms that you're describing, Lana, because that's incredibly helpful. And I think we often, or at least from my experience, get stuck at the LGBTQI defining piece, which, as you say, is really important. But the underlying factors and the causes of the discrimination, I've rarely had conversations about that. And I feel like it's very much missing. Yeah, I have lots to say about data. Data collection happens everywhere. It's always done in everything that we do. We collect so much data and we don't really use it and we don't know what to do with it and we don't collect it very well and we don't collect it accurately. We often don't collect it safely. We don't have security and risk mitigation processes in place, particularly for communities that are criminalised. And yet there's such a focus on it. And so I always am really hesitant when people start talking data collection because most of the time they collect data and they don't do anything with it in the first place, let alone use it for the good of the communities. Coming on to the exclusion of these groups, and I think in a data collection scenario, it's it's really, really common. But how do you identify that these groups exist in the first place? What if maybe they don't want to identify themselves in that way? Very much so within the humanitarian system and the aid system, I suspect a lot of the time that's true. There's a lot of history around the aid system excluding people with diverse OGS, of creating harm, of disrespect. There's a lot of fear there. I guess one of the things that makes Edge Effect really interesting is that we are an LGBTI organisation. We're founded and we're run by LGBT people. And we always work in partnership with local LGBT CSOs. The nature of that partnership changes depending upon the particular CSO because they're often, and this is absolutely generalisation, but they're often a human rights focused organisation, not a humanitarian and development organisation. Sometimes they're not directly connected with the local crisis affected community because they're in capital city. But one of the extraordinary things that has come out from the very beginning of starting Edge Effect in our research is the extraordinary informal networks that exist within LGBT spaces and throughout countries, knowing each other, providing resources to each other, particularly when aid resources aren't getting through. And so we tend to use snowball sampling or that kind of process to connect with different communities community groups to be able to connect with 
local crisis affected communities that identify as a diverse OG and be able to work with them around what are their rights, what are their needs, but also what are their strengths because they have such extraordinary strengths, especially considering that they have been systemically excluded. And so they have stepped up and provided support, provided materials, provided resources for each other. And so they're the communities that have been providing for each other when they haven't been able to get it from anywhere else. And so these communities are extraordinarily resilient. One of the words that you will hear a lot in the aid sector is a transformative approach. (laughs) (laughs) And a transformative approach is one which ameliorates the exclusion of people or the suffering of people. It creates a space where people's needs and rights are met. But we can't do that if we're not addressing those underlying exclusions, those underlying discriminations, those underlying barriers that block people's access to both their needs and their rights and their strengths as well. You're touching on some of the points we raised when we did a gender equality thematic review and their ambition was gender transformative wash. And we kept saying norms, norms norms, norms. And they went, no, 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 no. It's just project based. We're like, norms, norms, norms. <laughs> we have this conversation, particularly in WASH. I do an extraordinary amount of WASH work and that's exactly it. And I keep coming back to it. It can't be transformative unless you're focusing on those underlying norms. And if you're going to use that word, then let's actually do the actions. In fact, I'm really committed to the actions. I'm not saying that everybody needs to be transformative tomorrow or that we're always transformative. Sometimes we're just accommodating. Sometimes we're taking a really targeted approach and seeing what works and working with very specific small parts of the community rather than mainstreaming it because there's so many contexts, because it might be really dangerous, because we're doing Hamel, because we're just trying to slowly and surely see what it looks like and work together with communities. But if we're going to use this term, if this is going to be the goal for the global sector, then we need to know and understand it and we need to have that map and lay it out and go, this is what we have to do. And we absolutely, most certainly have to take a norms-based approach We have to know what those norms are and we have to start implementing them in our tools, in our guidance, in our practice, in our policy, rather than adding LGBT and STIR, but still doing the same old thing. I'm just going to clip that bit, Lana, of you saying that and like email it to everyone that we've worked with. We're we're sending it to the organization that shall not be named, but you know who you are. You mentioned earlier that you get some resistance to this. I'm curious about the resistance you get. We get a lot of resistance from everywhere, but I guess the resistance comes in a few different ways. One is, oh, we take a needs-based approach. We're just here to meet people's needs. We don't need to know about their identities. Assuming that through the existing system, all people's needs are being met and that's not the case. Another one is we need to focus on these external factors. We just need you to show us what the good practice is and then we'll just do it and not have all of that structure. We don't need to change anything. We can just somehow magically do it. Yeah, we've heard that a couple of times. (laughs) Yeah. One of the barriers, interestingly, is, oh, well, we don't want to work with OGS people because we don't want to do harm, which is a really bizarre thing to say because I think if people just dive in and start doing stuff, there absolutely can be harm done, particularly if they don't really know what they're doing. They don't have a good technical expertise because this is a technical area of work. But also, if you just leave LGBT people out, it actually does extraordinary harm anyway. Before EdgeFX started, there was this example with the response in Tamil Nadu with the Indian Ocean tsunami. There's a group of people there called Aravani and a person called Chaman Pincha was able to write a little bit of a report with this. But coming back to data, the international community flew in. They did rapid needs assessments. You had to tick male box or female box. The local Aravana community were like, well, we're not men and we're not women because they couldn't tick that box because the rapid needs assessments weren't designed in a way to include them meant that they didn't get the ID cards for response. They didn't get shelter. They didn't get access to food distribution or any of the other needs. Their deaths weren't recorded because the local community saw the international community excluding them from response the local community reinforced 
their discrimination and they ended up not only not getting their needs met in that humanitarian disaster but they ended up much worse off and so pre-emergency marginalization plus systemic discrimination in response ends up with doing extraordinarily much more harm and so it's not good enough to say we don't have the resources we don't have the technical expertise we're only going to focus on a needs-based approach or or we don't have the resourcing to focus on that special group of lgbt people it's actually our responsibility as aid actors to find the resources or advocate to donors for resources, build our technical expertise, make it a priority and not leave this group of people behind. We can wrap up later and you can tell us which organizations were involved in that and we'll troll them. (laughs) (laughs) Those kind of stories give me shivers. It's shocking. One of the resistances again is, oh, it's only a small population, conservatively 5% of the population. But if we're talking about the millions of people in locations where aid programs and response programs are, that's millions of people. And a rights-based approach shouldn't matter if it's only 5% of the population. We shouldn't have to categorize that. We shouldn't have to justify that in our data collection. These people exist. These people have their rights and their needs to aid and we should be providing it. I'm wondering what it looks like in the context. It's about 70 countries where homosexuality is criminalized. If you operate or if you support the civil society organizations in those countries, and what's that tension between working in a place where your mere existence is illegal? Well, I guess, first of all, is to understand that it's quite complex and nuanced. What you're talking about is homosexuality laws that focus on sexual activity is based on sodomy laws at cisgender men and trans women. For trans folk, they tend to get targeted also with other types of laws, cross-dressing laws, public disturbance laws, prostitution or sex worker laws. And so there's a whole variety of ways in which people with diverse sexual orientations and gender identities are criminalised and are targeted under criminal laws. But that doesn't always necessarily mean because those laws are on the books, those laws are active in different countries. So, for example, Tonga has the laws on their books, but they've not used those laws for quite a long time now. Another thing to consider is the importance of anti-discrimination laws. We kind of look to these global South countries and say, oh, look at them. They've got these issues around their laws and criminalise same-sex relationships and a variety of things. But we also need to acknowledge that in places like the US or Australia or the UK, there's social discriminations, there's a pushback against any discrimination laws and LGBT people are targeted in those places as well. So it's not that binary of global north great, global south bad. It's actually much more complex than that. And we have to take into account the colonial experience and how colonialism has shaped this. And also to ensure that we're not being racist by saying, oh, look at those global south countries. They're so behind the times. It's a complex situation to focus on. But there's also social spaces in some of these places where those criminal laws exist. There's amazing LGBT CSOs and activists fighting for LGBT rights in many countries. And there's very few countries that there's not some social space for us to work in. I'm going to be really out there and just call on the UK where you're all based at the moment and their anti-gender movement's pretty extreme. Oh, definitely. Yeah, this place ain't great either. Yeah, I know. Why am I here? Where should we go? (laughs) We're in a van. (laughs) Alana, where is it safe? I don't know. Let's recreate Lesbos. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Let's do it. Originally, I was a big supporter of, and some listeners may know this, about taking some of the white supremacists in the States and putting them on a small island in Alaska. But perhaps we just leave them there. We take that island because I'm still convinced (laughs) there might be some gold on it. And we just Lesbos all the way. Good idea. (laughs) Support us on Patreon if you want to buy a little rainbow island. island. (laughs) I'm totally in. There we go. There we go. We got one. (laughs) I'm pretty sure we could get Emily involved, right? So there's at least four. That seems reasonable. So I'm really curious then going back what programming looks like a bit more in these places. So, you know, if you are working with sexual and gender minorities in Uganda or Afghanistan, for example, and you're, you know, an international non-governmental organization. What does that look like? And, and is it very much working with these networks and these groups? 
pockets. Could you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, so there are little pockets of things happening. So, for example, in Bangladesh and Lebanon, there's LGBT CSOs involved in the protection cluster, for example. There are small projects happening in different places, in different programs, whether they be development or humanitarian. But I think that one of the things that I always advocate first is building the capability of INGOs and UN actors to be able to work in this space. I might have mentioned earlier that there is no global policy. There is no best practice. Organisations, their gender policies are very likely to be binary and heteronormative. Their tools are binary and heteronormative. They're actually not set up in a way to do this work that doesn't perpetuate the kinds of discriminations and exclusions that exist. Secondly, we always advocate that you work with local communities. And there's such a burden on LGBT CSOs in this space without any real consideration of how to work with them in a supportive and sustainable way. They'll expect the CSO, if they're going to partner together, to do child protection training, but those child protection training doesn't include LGBT young people or children. Safeguarding courses that don't consider what that means from a diverse OGS point of view. And so I guess as a generalization, that first step is to build your own capability and capacity so that you can do this in a thoughtful and considered and ethical and participatory way. I think the second thing is to get the technical experience and people, whether it be EdgeEffect or a few other people in the world that have focused on this space. And then I think the third thing is is considering what area that you're working in and if research is necessary. I don't think that we need research to tell us that LGBT people are excluded and discriminated against, that they're being left behind in the SDGs or in development programs or in response. But certainly there's a need to do research in some of the more specific thematic areas. So, for example, food distribution. What are ways in which people excluded explicitly in food distribution? What are the ways in which local communities can work together to think about alternative ways in which food distribution isn't heteronormative, isn't cisnormative, isn't binary? What ways do we need to work with the existing norms, acknowledging that most food distribution is focused on women because the assumption is women have children, that they are caregivers, that they feed and nurture everyone and think about, well, what does that mean for gay men who have families, for people who are in chosen families of trans women or trans men that live in small households together as a family? What does that mean for rapid response assessments, what does that mean for the cluster system and how that organises resources. So that's just an example of more research to be able to understand better what's happening so that some approaches can be taken to ensure that future response is more inclusive. It sounds like what you're asking for is for the international development humanitarian community to be actively self-reflective and in tune to exclusion, which in my experience feels like quite a tall order, to be honest. (laughs) It is. And also it shouldn't be. It has to be a reflexive practice. Community is about supporting community to be able to work ourselves out of a job. Isn't that the stuff that in university or wherever we were told were essential to the work that we do? And yes, it seems like a tall order because we don't do that or we mostly don't do that. I like to think that I do that. But it's certainly something that we should do. And I guess this is where really accountability to crisis affected communities comes into play. We have to go back to that really cool theme of being accountable. And it shouldn't be a tall ask. It shouldn't be something that's revolutionary. It should just be everyday given of this is how you do your job. Obviously, I agree with you. Maybe I'm just in a salty mood today. (laughs) But I just feel like we're just so accountability averse. When you say things like accountability, I love it. But I also hate it because I feel like I haven't seen good examples of true accountability to rights holders as duty bearers. And I am worried that on an institutional level, we won't. 
Sorry, everyone. Yeah. Sorry to bring everyone. <laughs> no, no. It, <laughs> I guess this is why I quit my job and I was just being a consultant for a few years before I started Edge Effect. I mean, that's basically that reason, our trajectory as well. You know, because it's felt so hard to me to work in a system in which I couldn't work in a values-based way. And that is the way in which I wholeheartedly work. And it was just, we talk about burnout and all sorts of things, but that's how it happens for me because I feel so bad. I feel so tortured working in a way that doesn't feel authentic and, and values-based. I think it's about using power somewhat. Power does exist. I think we need to acknowledge that and put pressure on that. And certainly people power is one way to do that. There are lots of us that think like this. And putting pressure onto those people in positions of power, for example, donors, and saying, look, you need to have accountability with your funding, have funding that ensures that LGBT people recipients or their needs are being met in humanitarian or development contexts, but also pressing that power and saying, you know, you need to have accountability mechanisms in this. I think the tricky thing is something that came up in the amazing piece of work Emily did, The Only Way Is Up, is network analysis, seeing how the system is so big and so powerful that what it does is if one small part is changed, the system will just move slightly to be able to resist that change. And so there has to be system-wide approaches. And I guess keeping accountable to those organizations, to those NGOs, etc., that are there simply not to help people, but to continue to get funding. Because I know that I shouldn't be saying this, but I am saying this, those organizations absolutely exist. They exist to maintain themselves as organizations. They exist to continue to get money, to do what they do, not to change the world, not to alleviate suffering, but so they can continue to get funding and continue to exist as an organization. And I believe that we should be existing to come to a point where we don't have to exist. Round of applause there. We love the passion in what you're saying, Lana. It's coming across so strongly and we love that. Yeah, we completely agree. I mean, that's part of the reason why we started this podcast is so we could complain about those organizations. Yeah, and totally on the values-driven piece. I mean, we're in that disillusion and trying to get out of it. We'll find the values-based organizations that we want to work for. Is that effect hiring? Actually, we are. <laughs> <laughs> Expect our CVs in the mail. <laughs> We've got a research position I put out today. We've got a new project manager position coming up in the next week or so. We've got a few positions coming up. So Great, that suits right. our skill sets perfectly. Okay, but we have to edit that out of the podcast because we don't want Okay. Yeah, sure. I think it'd be also really good to talk a bit about staff working in some of these organizations. I'm reflecting on myself a bit. I've been and worked in places like Afghanistan, South Sudan, and there was never a point in which before I went, there was a conversation or a risk assessment about my sexual identity or gender identity might mean in this context or protection mechanisms or discussions around safety. Potentially, organizations may have considered that to an intimate conversation, but you're taking staff across the rainbow spectrum into places that could put them at risk. And just curious, your experience with this, your thoughts on this, yeah, and any examples you have of, of organizations that are doing this well? can't think of any organizations that are doing it well. And in fact, I can talk about organizations that, you know, are saying, oh, we want to do external work with LGBT people, but even within the head offices, they don't have visas for same gender partners or all sorts of things. Yeah. Certainly, organizations need to focus on their own internal structures and their own internal policies and their own internal processes and ensure the safety of those staff members is integral. And in fact, actually, we did work with one organization to help build that. And it was a volunteer organization focusing on supporting LGBT volunteers to travel and do their volunteer work within primarily development contexts. And, you know, some of that really good practice that came about from that is focusing on their internal policies, focusing on internal support mechanisms and support networks and mental touring between old volunteers and new volunteers, being able to have country assessments that brought into play the legal social situation in those countries and also connecting them to local LGBT CSOs. And so what I have to say is that a lot of work has to be done in this space to consider these things. And safety and security is extraordinarily important. That's something that we focused on a little bit less because of the nature of our work is often not in hostile situations 
and we'll often have our own risk assessments and risk mitigation measures when we go to places that are a little bit riskier. The way that I guess my passions lay is working more so with communities around supporting the LGBT communities and crisis-affected communities that I'm working with, not to do risk assessments on them, but to support them to develop their own risk mitigation factors of what it means to participate in development programs, in humanitarian response programs, what it means to be out essentially by saying this system is discriminating against me this is the needs that I want or need to have met and acknowledging that those underlying norms are creating barriers for those needs to be met. Are you talking about building agency? How are we going to do that Uh, in the national development space? Come on, (laughs) you're crazy now. Yeah, I know. Because I've worked in disability so long, I'm so many amazing things to learn from the different movements. And I think that there needs to be more cross-fertilization, but certainly working with these communities Risk is something that always comes up with everybody, but I really like to take that dignity of risk approach and say, well, how can I support the community to make choices about what risk they would like to take? We did a project and we were effectively saying, like, you do risk assessments on your partners on civil society organizations that you work with, but they should be doing it with you because you're likely more problematic because one, you're an international organization with very high profile. Two, you've had some recent scandals. Three, you're delivering programming, which may be considered controversial in the current political context. You don't need to be doing your due diligence on them. You need to be supporting them to do a due diligence and a risk assessment on their relationship to you. And I don't, did that go down okay? I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably uh, not. Yeah. I think that comes back to that power thing. And it's really interesting. I just finished a four-year project and I created this monitoring, learning and evaluation framework where they had to evaluate me and how participatory I was. If they felt like they knew and understood the project, if they felt like they were able to take leadership in the project, that they had their goals met in the project. And I would spend a week there and go back every eight weeks over this time. And so at the end of each week, I would ask them to do it. And, you know, I was happy to leave the room or whatever. So that power thing. And it was so interesting because the first couple of visits there, they were like, oh, Lana's the most amazing person. She's absolutely everything, like 10 out of 10. And then after, I don't know, four visits, my scores kept going down 75%. 70%. And it's because I'd actually built enough trust with them that they could actually be honest with be me honest. and yeah. tell me, actually, this is where you need to improve. This is what we think about this. You need to do that better or we don't understand that. And I just felt like that was something that I'm really proud of because it meant that I could be that R word reflective or reflective <laughs> and, <laughs> and go, okay, you know, this is what you're seeing. The issue is how can we work together to co-design this next part? so that we're not making those mistakes, so that we're better addressing what you want to address, so that I'm better supporting you for you to take leadership. And it actually wasn't that hard, but it's so interesting that it considered so unusual and so like revolutionary when that's what Mel should be, right? It should be that iterative process of doing the things that we actually say we're going to do in this system, but we don't. Lauren's got this look in her face where she's simultaneously inspired, but also demoralized. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I know, I know. (laughs) Where are we on this? We're always really struggling with this power dynamic, particularly for us as consultants, because we zoom in, we steal people's stories, and then we zoom out. Right. And that bit about being candid and honest and providing honest feedback is always a space that I've, maybe because I still have some degree of imposter syndrome, but I always just wonder, am I doing enough to make sure people feel that they're in a space where they know they can trust me and that they know they can be candid and honest. And we're often trying to get organizations to take big steps back and big steps away from us because we want people to tell us how things are going and their true experiences, particularly when it's within organizations. We're often like, we don't want to talk to anybody in senior leadership. We just want to talk to everybody else because they will have a whole political angle that they're trying to advance and 
we don't really care about that. We want to know how things are actually going. And that's the people who are actually doing stuff. But I find it really hard to break out of that and build trust in such a limited, compressed space. Yeah. What I often get, particularly where you get a sense that there's a much more hierarchical structure, you get a lot of deferential tones and everything's great and everything's good. And I'm like, but where are things not good? Like, well, we're less good at managing our time because we're so busy being amazing. And you're just like, (laughs) they want someone to come in who's objective, but actually they defeat that by not giving you enough time to build trust, Mm. true information. Yeah. But I think, you know, hit the nail on the head there when you talk about resources, when you talk about time, when you talk about money, often funders and organizations aren't prepared to have that level investment And they always talk about, oh, but we need to scale up and all of these things. When actually, if you just worked really well with the community for, say, for example, four years, but they actually, through that time, were able to know and understand how they want to take leadership and how they want to progress forward and you leave, it is much less time, energy, effort, resources, funding, because you're not going back there project after project after project for the next 50 years. That sounds really extreme, but that's what's been happening for the last 50 years. I know a couple of organizations that fit that bill, (laughs) where they've been doing the same programming for over 50 years. The pessimistic side of me perceives the sentiment to be, we don't actually want to work ourselves out of a job. So why invest in communities to be able to have self-reliance when what that means is that we kind of slowly lumber off into extinction, which I absolutely think we should. Look, I guess it depends on different points of view, but I guess in the LGBT space, there's the whole world and there's really not much happening. So if I did our job really well and we were able to move on, if we move on to different places every four years, I would still have a job. Unfortunately, that's the reality of things. And if we did be able to change the world, how I deeply hope and strive for, in which people suffering was alleviated, just the way in which the world could exist is so different to what it is now that I really don't know what the future is, but I'm sure that there's something that I could do that lives to my values. I don't have to do that by fighting every day to say that LGBT people should be included. I could be doing something else. I could be riding my bicycle. I could be being a lesbian feminist rider. I could be running workshops on how to live a good life. I don't know. I'm sure there's a billion other things that we could do. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the three that you picked up are really resonating with me. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I mean, a new side hustle. Yeah, riding my bike. Love it. I'm wondering now if this kind of transformative approach journey to transformation (laughs) is reinforcing all of this because, you know, transformation is a bit uncertain. No one knows what it means. So let's keep working towards it forever. (laughs) (laughs) Is that your plug for keeping this podcast going for the longest we can? The journey doesn't end. Exactly. (laughs) We're all going to be transforming forever. I mean, in some ways, you'd hope so. Because if the context around you is constantly evolving, then, you know. Yeah. Fair enough. I've got another question, which is a massive question to be asking. We are often confronted with this conversation when we say, look, here's a group of people that you're excluding. And in my own self-interest, I'm often like, okay, where are your LGBTQI plus people? What's happening? Where's your programming in this space? We can't be talking about diversity, inclusion, and you've got a massive population that's missing from that. So one of the pieces of pushback that I get, and I'm sure this is one that you get, and we've talked a little bit about it before, is around norms within the locations that people are working in. And they say, well, it's not our place to challenge norms and we don't want to do that. But a fair point is about the external challenge of norms and what that looks like and whether or not that might be replaying some colonial mentalities. And where is the place of international organizations to be changing norms externally? And I think what you might say is that, well, that's why you work in partnership with civil society organizations so that it's built inside by communities and there's a kind of two-way pressure. But maybe you won't say that. I don't know. Look, I think that that is an extraordinarily good question. And I'm going to bring it back a little bit to the personal right now and share my experience of how difficult this is. So I'm a Fijian Australian woman. I'm a lesbian woman. 
I dig other women. This is where we get to talk about sex a little Same. bit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what I see, and this is a generalization, but what I see is that there is more space in the communities that we work with in development contexts where there's a little bit more social space for trans people or for gender people or people with diverse gender identities and histories. And, you know, if we think about some of the terms that I used before talking about gender and talking about lewa, talking about fafafini, fa'atama, hidra, aravani, etc., etc., you know, they're all gender terms. And the way that many of the communities that we work with are ones in which gender and sexuality are deeply combined. So I've had people say to me, well, for example, I'm assigned male at birth. I'm a trans woman because I have a feminine identity expression and I'm romantically and sexually attracted to men. And so that sexuality and gender is deeply entwined and embedded. What there's less social space for is people that disrupt heteronormativity and don't fall into pairings where people take on binary gender roles. And so in the context of the Pacific, as a Pacifica woman, there's much less social space for lesbian women, for bisexual women, than there is for trans women, for example. Now, that's not to say that trans women or transgender folk don't experience horrific discrimination and stigma and that we shouldn't always, always be working in solidarity to lift them up. We absolutely should be. But it's a really difficult space because a gender norm in these contexts is one which really perpetuates that heteronormativity norm, that there's a binary and that people have very particular gender roles and they make up a whole. And that's something so deeply contradictory to my life where I think you can be two feminine women or two masculine women or something else completely different and that's okay as well. So culturally in my own life, I'm constantly fighting this. And also people from Fijian communities and Pacifica communities are saying, well, this is how things have always been. Like this is the way the world works. It's Mother Earth and Father Sun and all of these different things that perpetuate that binary. And how do we get around that, I think, is really complicated. And I don't always have the answers to it, except to say that it's about creating conversations with people not enforcing things on communities, but even in our own communities, even in our own practices, acknowledging, highlighting what those norms are and how we perpetuate those norms. And we perpetuate them constantly as well as contradicting ourselves and trying to break them apart. For example, we say that women should be able to do any job and yet we keep doing wash programming around women and water, for example, mm. because women are the bearers of water. So it's really complicated and there is no answer but to say that it is an extraordinarily complex one and it's one which excludes people. It's one that creates otherness it's one that discriminates against people because those norms exist and so working with communities to be able to have really honest courageous conversations and say this is how this person or this is how this community is affected by these norms this is how the community is feeling excluded by these norms or using our power to create space so that communities themselves that are excluded can have those conversations. And maybe that's a better way to do it is using our power to create that space so other people in those communities can take leadership and start having those conversations. Because I think ultimately I'm the kind of hopeful person that thinks that if people come together and are really real with each other and really vulnerable with each other, that they'll come to a place where they can work alongside each other because we're ultimately herd animals. We ultimately value community. We ultimately value connection. We ultimately want to be a part 
of community together. And so using our power to create spaces so that the crisis-affected communities, the communities that are disadvantaged and marginalised and discriminated against, know that we have their back to be able to start these conversations, to create connections within their broader communities, in their families. You know, I think that that's a really good first step. That felt really powerful, Lana. Across this conversation, we've gone into some really difficult things. And at, at times I felt a bit sort of hopeless, but I really sense the hopefulness and passion in, in what you're saying right now. And I'm really grateful to have had this conversation with you to know how I can talk about this with other people in my life. And often something that comes through these conversations is this being attuned to different dimensions and different norms around us. And so I'm very thankful to understand more of those four areas that you mentioned again just now and at the beginning and knowing that I can take those away, heteronormativity, endosexism, and I think the other two, and we'll put those in our show notes as well for other people to understand more about, to know that I can go away and, and talk about the discrimination underlying all of this yeah just a personal reflection there are you crying no not yet what you can see is that lauren's looking very milky eyed well in some ways that's really good because i feel like i've just been kind of ranting and going on my little spills but it's good that it feels like there's a connection and that it's resonating it absolutely is i've got ideas germinating for some of the projects that we're working on about things that they can be thinking about and be taking forward and understanding i know i took a dip listeners and Lana and Lauren. But yes, I too have now been infected by the hope. <laughs> well, that's why we're in this space, yeah. isn't it? It's because we have hope for a better world. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what you were talking about before really resonates for me in that Lauren and I quit the world we were working in for a number of reasons. But we started this consultancy with this singular focus on being values-based and I think sometimes we lose track of where we want to be in that space because of rent and utilities and petrol prices. And I inevitably come out to the end where I just have this tension of like, I wanted to be someplace else and now I'm not in that place. And I will admit that I perhaps let our clients exert much more influence on my, my willingness to compromise my values than perhaps they need to. I mean, they're paying us a shit ton of money. So like, really, I should just be throwing the power around. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> that comes up for us as well. And certainly at the beginning, we started this company in a way that our accountants call sweat equity. You know, there was no money involved. It was just really, really hard work. And our co-founder, Emily, sometimes is like, that's it. I'm going to be a train driver. <laughs> same, same. I'm just... I'm just giving it all up. I'm going to be a train driver. And I'm inspired by that because in some ways it reminds me if I can't live to my values doing the work that I do with an edge effect, then rather than not being true to myself in this field, actually just change fields. And it's really hard and it's really scary. And I don't know if I'd be brave enough to do it if push came to shove. But right now, what I'm lucky enough being the CEO and being the co-founder is that I kind of have the power to say, actually, this is the way that we do things. I love it. That's a great point to end on, I think, <laughs> that this is the way we do things, because that's exactly what we want to strive for. So, Lana, thank you so much for this really informative and powerful conversation. I can't wait to write up the show notes and share this yeah. with everyone. So Lana, again, thank you very much. You're very welcome. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for your time and energy and space to be able to share what it is we do and how we do it. Thank right. you so much, Lana. I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And I'm Lana. And this has been the Journey to Transformation. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.